This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for those who care for us. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition of Airing Pain has been funded by Kiowa Kirin. In a recent edition of Airing Pain, that is number 123, which is still available to download, we looked at issues around the use and overuse of opioid-based medications for the management of chronic pain. One of the contributors in that programme was Dr Cathy Stannard, an internationally recognised expert on aspects of pain management and particularly opioid therapy. I'll just remind you of something she said in that programme. Do you think the medicines are making much difference? And there is a dawning realisation that it's just like taking Smarties is something that we commonly hear. We know that patients are fearful of reducing because, of course, if your pain is bad and you're on medicines, what if it's worse? It's very difficult and it depends on the individual's perceptions and so on. But we do have evidence from a huge number of patient reports that freed from the many burdensome side effects, people feel much more alert, able to engage with their families and engage themselves in strategies which help manage their pain. So we know that uh, most of the medicines that we prescribe for pain, which actually stop the way that nerves talk to other nerves, do have side effects which make people sleepy, sedated, giddy um, and so on. And all those things make it very difficult to start trying to manage people's lives to uh, try and mitigate the effects of long-term pain. That was Dr Cathy Stannard, reminding us from an earlier edition of Airing Pain of some of the issues and side effects experienced by those prescribed opioid-based medications for the management of their chronic pain. Well, in this edition of Airing Pain, I want to look at another side effect that, judging by the volume of calls Pain Concerns Helpline received, is of particular concern to those using opioid-based medications for the management of their chronic pain, and that is constipation. 27% of the constipated patients may relate their constipation to medications. In my last clinic audit, I found that approximately 30% of the patients who present with constipation would be on opioid treatments for chronic pain condition. This is Dr Maria Eugenikos. And as we recorded this interview during the COVID-19 crisis, socially distanced, of course, via a video conference line, there are references to the crisis in 2020. So, Dr Eugenikos is a clinician, gastroenterologist and senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh and Edinburgh's Western General Hospital. She specialises in functional gut disorders. Constipation is defined by several criteria that may include difficult, painful uh, defecation, incomplete bowel emptying, decreased frequency of emptying, manual manoeuvres, and by definition for functional constipation, this should be the diagnosis if there is insufficient criteria to make the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome as in functional constipation. And usually when we do diagnose uh, constipation, people do not present with loose stools, but with hard lumpy stools and may present with loose stools only in the 
presence of laxatives, if they have been using laxatives to alleviate their symptoms. One question we have to ask is, what does regular mean? What is regular bowel movements? If I were to reverse the question, I suppose, and I would say, is it abnormal to have less than one bowel movement per day? And that perhaps is not necessarily okay the case in that when they have done a study questioning healthy uh, controls, then their frequency of bowel movements varied from three times per week to six times per week. So just frequency does not define the uh, constipation, but if the decreased frequency is associated with several other criteria already mentioned, like straining, difficult emptying, painful emptying, then perhaps this allows you to make the diagnosis of uh, constipation. If we compare that with patients with constipation, the majority of patients with constipation would admit to a frequency less than once per week. That's the majority of patients, about 60% of these patients. About 20% of patients would say once a week, maybe 5% would say twice a week. So yes, the majority of patients with constipation would have decreased bowel frequency. The patients with constipation is a great healthcare burden in that in previous studies, 80% of the patients attended community nurses requesting treatment for their constipation. So if we track admissions to hospital, where perhaps the primary endpoint, if you like, would be constipation, then it amounts to 70 million in uh, recent studies. Uh, the consultant or GP consultations with regard to treatment for constipation management may amount up to 38 million per year. So it's not a dismissive cost. Uh, furthermore, patients who may suffer from constipation may call more often absent from their work. The absenteeism is quite high. So how much of a problem is opioid-related constipation? Now, the opioid-related constipation, it is sometimes hard to define because in a recent study that we performed, we found that um, patients may be started on opioids without prior inquiring about their symptoms. What we know that 27% of the constipated patients may relate their constipation to medications. Now, opioids are not the only medication that may cause constipation, but is the most common medication that has been prescribed and does cause that. So it's not a negligible amount either. Only 46% of patients with constipation may present with primary. The rest of them are all secondary. So when we have tried to identify how many of the patients develop constipation once they have started opioids, it was difficult to define because we did not have that information. For those patients that we had the information, it was about 34% may not have had any symptoms whatsoever and may develop constipation following opioids. From anecdotal evidence, though, we know that if we do not treat the constipation, if we do not address that and people continue to be on opioids, 
then they may develop opioid-induced constipation further down the line. And this is what sometimes may perhaps affect the patient's judgment to say, but I have been on the opioids and I didn't have the symptoms in the beginning. Now I develop the symptoms. It could be cumulative effects because the patient may start on a low dose of the opioids and then they may increase the dose and then may develop further symptoms. How do you address that with a patient coming to you saying, I have constipation and I'm on opioids? and they've already made that link between them, whether it's a, a correct link or, or not. How do you address it? That may vary depending on the cause of why the patient was started on the opioids in the first place. Education of patients is very important in these cases. So we try to explain to the patient that the opioids in the treatment of pain perhaps are more successful for the acute pain situation Yes, uh, we do offer opioid treatment for patients who have got cancer pain, but for chronic conditions, perhaps it's better to try other neuromodulators rather than go directly to the opioid for the particular reason in that constipation itself may cause pain. So we may be aggravating the syndrome, if you like in inverted commas, of pain because you are trying to address one type of pain while replacing with something else. I would go through their lifestyle, try to address lifestyle measures, and we address their diet, their liquid intake. I advocate uh, water, hot water regimes, regulating the bowel habit, trying to make the bowel habit predictable is very important exercising, physical activity, the position at the toilet to facilitate relaxation of the pelvic floor, avoid straining, all of these play a role. And we try and identify those. Once a patient though has been referred to my clinic, which is a specialist tertiary referral clinic, almost always they would have been tried on other medications. So we do not only address the lifestyle measures, we would address what medications they have, what doses have they had these medicines, and we're addressing this with the simple laxatives, osmotic laxatives, which is the first choice of treatment, or other stimulant laxatives if they have had something like that. And if they have not been responding to these, then we would go on to prescribing specialist medications to contract the opioid effect on the bowel motility. Is there a new opioid receptor antagonist that we have got available, which can be prescribed orally and the patient can take it as they are at home. Now, I guess you're seeing people who are coming to you because they are unwell. Constipation is a problem to them. What would you suggest people do if they know they're going to be prescribed opioids to prevent this from the very start? We try and educate the patients in that patients who are on chronic opioid treatment may develop hypersensitivity, visceral hypersensitivity, which is the case in patients who have got IBS, and in particular, in this uh, group of patients, IBS constipation. So if I treat their pain with something that in the long run may make their body debilitated to address pain, 
then perhaps I'm not addressing the question correctly. So what I try and do usually, I would appreciate the patient is in pain, the patient may need to be treated. So I would usually advocate neuromodulators and the neuromodulators of choice. And these are the medicines that they would be prescribed usually as a first choice in the pain clinics, in the specialist pain clinics is um, tricyclic antidepressants in small doses, either amitriptyline if it's tolerated or nortriptyline. Nortriptyline has got less sedative effect and only take the opioids over and above for an acute situation and that they would work better. Sometimes the patients are prescribed the mild opioids when patients present with abdominal pain and diarrhea trying to control diarrhea symptoms and that may lead into constipation and then we are dealing with a mixed type of disorder which sometimes is harder to treat. You mentioned IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Yes. Explain what that is. The irritable bowel syndrome is the syndrome characterized by abdominal pain, which is associated with altered bowel habit. So it may relate either to diarrhea, the presence of abdominal pain, or constipation, the presence of abdominal pain. We would make the diagnosis if the symptoms have been present for at least three months prior to the presentation. So it has to be a continuous type of effect. Anybody may develop abdominal pain when an altered bowel habit, it doesn't mean that all people would have IBS, but if this is persistent presentation over a period of time, then it would make the diagnosis of IBS. People who may have had chronic constipation for years may develop IBS, when especially each time they have got altered bowel habit, this relates to abdominal pain. And we do warn them that sometimes it can fluctuate the recent Rome 4 criteria have defined that discomfort is not part of the IBS as a syndrome. Uh, it has to be pain. And the reason for that is that anybody with constipation may have discomfort. When they become bloated, when uh, the bowel distends with fecal loading, etc. But the pain per se is characteristic of the IBS, the irritable bowel syndrome. You said constipation or diarrhea. I've talked to some people who have both. Make a diagnosis of IBS constipation. The patient presents with hot lumpy stool, and we define that through the bowel consistency, the bowel motion consistency, because this may reflect more accurately the pathophysiology of the syndrome. But these people may have loose stools but it should be less than 25% of the time. Now, the patients who present with IBS diarrhea would have abdominal pain and would have loose or watery stools. They could have harder stools, but it should be less than, again, 25% of the time. Now, if people, though, present with alternate bowel habit, constipation alternates with diarrhea, and this may happen more than 25% of the time, then we are dealing with mixed type IBS. And we have got the unsub type that at times they present with constipation, at times they present with diarrhea and they can fluctuate. So it's four types. And again, the reason for the differentiation of these four types is because the bowel consistency would be different and that reflects different pathophysiology 
and as a result, it would mean different type of treatment for these people. And the reason why I'm asking about IBS is because IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, does seem to go hand in hand with some chronic pain conditions like fibromyalgia, like other conditions. And in some cases, pharmaceutical treatments are the same. They seem to be working on the same systems. Am I right? Yes. The pain control for fibromyalgia, for example, or for IBS is neuromodulation. For all the chronic pain syndromes like this would be neuromodulation. We have come across more often of patients who may have IBS and may present with fibromyalgia or other chronic conditions. We do not really know whether this is because these are very common conditions or whether there is a causative effect or whether pharmaceutical treatment trying to address one condition may lead to another. It is a very complex and interrelated situation but in my clinic, I get quite a few patients with IBS who have resistant symptoms. Quite a few of them would have fibromyalgia. Quite a few of them may have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and other conditions. Now, one of the reasons we're doing this edition of, of Airing Pain is because of the number of people who phone up our helpline about it, but also because of the controversies over using opioids for the management of chronic pain. Do you get people who come to see you with chronic pain conditions who are heavily reliant on opioids and have constipation? Yes. In my last clinic audit, I found that approximately 30% of the patients who present with constipation would be on opioid treatments for chronic pain conditions. So it's quite a high proportion of the constipation patients. Whether these people are referred to my clinic because their primary care professionals, physicians would like us to commence these people on specialist treatment or whether because they're not familiar with the specialist treatment and the first and second line laxative treatment has failed, It is difficult to know, but yes, I do have a cohort of patients who present to my clinic with uh, this problem. A young man, he is uh, 42 years old and was referred to my clinic because his symptoms of constipation and pain were not responding. He had the diagnosis of IBS constipation made and one of my colleagues, a gastroenterologist, asked me to see him. I saw him last July He was a very switched on patient. So I took him through the pathophysiology of the IBS syndrome of the constipation and explained to him the long-term effect of somebody being on the opioids to control the pain and offered him the modern way of addressing chronic pain through neuromodulators. And when I explained to him that, although I'm trying to treat, although it was not me who initiated the opioids, But I said to him, I'm your physician. I'm trying to treat your pain. And I'm giving you opioids because they do control the pain. But I have to tell you that in the long run, our studies show that you may develop a hypersensitivity. So I'm giving you opioids to treat the pain that may make you more hypersensitive to pain. And they may not be addressing the pain control at all. 
he was so much motivated that he went home, studied the information leaflets I gave him on how to gradually reduce and come off the opioids. He managed within three months time to stop the opioids and had a review by my colleague who saw him in the first instance in November, which makes it four months down the line and declared that I followed Dr. Eugenico's advice. I'm off the opioids now. My bowels are back to normal. I do not have much pain, very little pain at all. So I'm feeling much happier. So you might say, mm, maybe this anecdotal, maybe it is different, but there is a follow-on story in that we ran into the COVID situation and the patient became quite stressed and quite anxious about his job, about this and that and the other, like most people nowadays with the lockdown. And I reviewed him in my specialist clinic only a month ago and his symptoms were back to square one. So I was so disappointed. So I said to him, what happened? And he said to me, I don't know what happened. And when I took the history of medications and stuff, he was back on opioids. But I said to him, do you remember when you stopped the opioids? You went and saw so-and-so who wrote to me to say thank you so much because you managed to advise my patient and he's now free of symptoms. He couldn't remember it, of course, because he went into this situation, had developed pain, perhaps because of stress, because of anxiety, started the opioids because they were handed to him. So when I reminded him and I read the detail of the letter my colleague sent me, he said, yes, you're right. I was so much better off. I did say to him, I do understand why you went back on them. Maybe you were stressed. But I said to him, if you cannot manage without the opioids, I would suggest you do start the neuromodulators, which is the past he managed to cut down the opioids, stop the opioids. He didn't even go back to the neuromodulators. But I suppose because of the current situation, the worries that he had in particular, he agreed to go on the neuromodulators and a regime to try and cut back. This one example, and I had a few patients like that, that they did say, I stopped it because I decided I didn't want to be on this anymore. And suddenly their symptoms improve. Whether they need to be supported with some form of treatment, either regulating their bowel habit better or giving them a form of neuromodulator to avoid any of the symptoms coming back and reinforcing this sort of dependence, if you like, it's important as well. You mentioned giving out leaflets. Education is absolutely crucial. I have got special interest in that. We have developed with medical students uh, educational leaflets to give to the patient. We did a trial where we have um, designed the symptoms, lifestyle measures, medications to take, which are safer for long-term, which are perhaps less often prescribed long-term, etc. And when we gave the patient's questionnaire what they wanted to know more about, there was a pathophysiology behind their symptoms. So what they enjoyed coming and listening about when they were coming to the clinic is um, myself showing them a picture of the gut and explaining them the journey of the food through their stomach, through their small bowel, the large bowel, the function of each one of these organs, the function of the rest of the endocrine, uh, if you like function, the uh, enzymes that we produce, how does our bowel react to that? Why do we develop the symptoms we develop? And they were really fascinated. And I think if we allow the patients to be well-educated, to know why they get the symptoms they get, 
what makes their symptoms appear certain times of their month, if you like, hormonal changes maybe, stress situations, and they know to address those and prevent their symptoms happening. And if they are in control, this perhaps is the key to successful treatment in general. We managed to know more about how a patient can control their symptoms better through the biofeedback. When we were giving the patient the treatment modalities to take home and do it on their own. And because they had to educate themselves how to work a biofeedback machine, what does it do? What does relaxation mean? They were much better controlling their symptoms and much more successful. So I do give them routinely leaflets, but nowadays I give them leaflets relating to their own symptoms. What my task in the future is to make a booklet altogether, which would contain all the information so they don't need to depend either to their GPs visiting and telling them this and that, or to their following any healthcare professional. They need to have ownership of their symptoms, of their treatment, know what to do in the future. Dr. Maria Eugenikos, clinical gastroenterologist at Edinburgh's Western General Hospital. Now, as always, I remind you that we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available. You should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. You can find all the resources to support the management of chronic pain, including details of our videos, leaflets, all editions of Airing Pain, of course, and Pain Matters magazine at painconcern.org.uk. And Pain Concern is currently preparing an information leaflet and an article for Pain Matters magazine on how to manage opioid-induced constipation. So please look out for that in the future. Dr Maria Eugenikos also recommends the IBS Network website as an excellent online resource for the management and understanding of IBS and other related conditions. The address is theibsnetwork.org and there are no gaps, theibsnetwork.org. In that website, they would be able to ask any questions these bodies are linked to specialists and if anybody asks questions, they usually would address them to us and we would answer back. So it's a big cohort of patients who usually try to collaborate. It's more about IBS, but all of these conditions are addressed under this umbrella. It doesn't have to be only IBS. So people, for example, who may have bilacid diarrhea, bilacid diarrhea may ask questions. Nobody would tell them, by the way, this is not IBS. Or if somebody says, I have been commenced on dehydrocodate and I developed the symptoms, what can I do? Again, we address all of these symptoms. 